great to have you here. We want to have some challenging thoughts about general practice. Let me introduce the panel here. Judith Smith, you're from the Nuffield Trust. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role? Yes, I'm Judith Smith. I'm Director of Policy at the Nuffield Trust, which is an independent charitable health research foundation. And I lead a team there who do lots of research and policy analysis on topics including primary care, uh, health commissioning, uh, and also a lot of work on efficiency and dealing with the downturn. Great, thanks. Nav, Nav China. Uh, uh, thanks very much, Daniel. I'm, I'm a GP um, in, in Mitcham, South West London, uh, and um, I'm also um, Postgraduate Dean for General Practice Education in London Deanery, um, and shortly to take on a role which I'm still trying to grapple with as a Director of Education Quality for South London in the new education reforms that are, that are kicking in. Um, and I'll, I'll, play, I'll downplay this a bit, but I'm also Vice Chairman of the NAPC, National Association of Primary Care. Great, Nav, thanks. When well, I'm going straight from the city, to the sunny Devon. Uh, Helen, maybe you'd introduce yourself. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm Dr Helen Thomas. I'm also a GP. Um, I have been 25 years as a partner in Devon, in Plymouth, in an inner city practice, but left last May and um, am now a locum, which is a very different uh, feeling. I'm also um, the Associate Medical Director for the Cluster of Devon. I am the primary care medical director for the Peninsula Cancer Network, which is an interesting job. And I'm also the GP SHA lead for the South West. And finally, Claire Garada. Claire, perhaps you'd give us a quick bio on yourself. Yes, of course. I'm chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners uh, and have been for the last two years. But I also have a, another day job, or at least two day jobs. One is I'm medical director of the Practitioner Health Programme, which is a, a service for sick doctors. And I'm also a jobbing GP. I currently do a general practice session in Whitechapel and another in Vauxhall in, in South London. And it keeps me very, very, very grounded as to what is actually going on in, in the so-called real world of general practice rather than the higher echelons of 30 Euston Square, which is our new headquarters. Great. Thanks, sir. Judith, let's start with you. General practice. How good is it? How bad is it? I mean, the Nuffield Trust have done some fantastic work in general practice. Not all complimentary. How do you think it stands at the moment? Well, I... I'm a huge believer in general practice and primary care and throughout my um, health management and research career have been very persuaded of the evidence of the importance of having a really strong primary health care system uh, within a country if you're going to be able to, in a sense, get the the double win of having high quality and um, as low costs as possible for your health system. So. I'd say big believer in primary care uh, and I think our primary care system in the UK has been internationally admired over the years um, and particularly for things about its ability certainly in theory to assure continuity of care comprehensive uh, provision and also well coordinated services for people however and there's always a however isn't there I, I have a feeling, uh, well, a belief, actually, that I think we may have got complacent about our uh, primary care provision in this country. And I think whilst there's still this huge potential and there are pockets, uh, well, more than pockets, there's a lot of excellent uh, provision. But I think we've also got some unacceptable variation in both quality and sort of extent of provision of care. And perhaps most importantly, the needs have changed, that, that what 
Um, I mean, uh, my colleague at Nuffield, Rebecca Rosen, says that she she's constantly in meetings where she's told at once that primary care is the problem and primary care is the solution. And I think that uh, encapsulates a lot, actually, that uh, it, primary care has huge potential. It's delivering uh, an enormous amount. But I think where we're at with particularly general practice in this country at the moment is we're somewhat locked into trying to deal with huge amounts of, let's call it access and presenting demand. But I think we're a bit stuck in a certain model of provision where but people haven't got the headroom and capacity to sort of stand outside of that and say, where should we be going next? Great. Thanks, Judith. Because, you know, there are problems with primary care and we, we probably need to talk about them here today. Now, let me ask Helen about this, because, Helen, you've stepped out a little bit from being, from being a principal to being a locum. You can stand back a little bit objectively and look at primary care. Judith says we have a problem. We have a problem of variability in care, a problem of standards of care. What are your thoughts on that? I think we do have a problem, but I think, in a way, quite a lot of the problem is completely understandable. I've recently dealt with a complaint that for me just encapsulated the whole issue we have here where a GP is being taken to the cleaners for not getting a patient into hospital soon enough and the patient ended up in hospital for five weeks whereas if they'd had an early outpatient appointment never got to hospital because but it was a rare condition and the GP asked for a normal appointment not with the outpatient um, with the dermatologist rather than an urgent one. So the system is so hard and the GP is being told off for not having fought the system hard enough. But actually you run out of speed. You can't do it all the time. The system doesn't help. And so I think that we need to look at... You, know, you can quite understand that GPs are getting exhausted because if you've got to work that hard to get the right patients to the right place, you can't do it all the time. Thanks, Helen. Claire, I mean, you, you, as chair of the college, you have responsibility for a huge range of general practitioners across the country and there must be huge variability in the standards of general practice. What's your thought on this? My poor profession. My poor, poor profession. I would challenge anybody to deliver the sort of care, the complexity of care for £65 to £80 per patient per year and to continue to do that in an evidence-based manner. Of course there's variability but I think we have to start moving on from that and actually number one as uh, Helen is saying understand the variability but actually move on and where I'm at from the Royal College of GPs is we have we have put a, a gauntlet down and we've said if we have more GPs spending longer with their patients and their communities with longer training then the GP of tomorrow is the solution for the NHS and we will do things differently we will build on what we've already done but we will do things differently we may even take back, for example, out-of-hours care. We will work in federations of practices. We will embrace telecare, telehealth. But I get so fed up, in particular, dare I say, around some of the think tanks, which all they will do is beat my poor profession. For a tenth of the cost of a day in hospital, my profession provide unlimited care to their patients. My elderly patients consult, on average, 20 times per year for 65 to £75 per patient per year. Judith, what do you think? Are you a think tank? Is Claire getting the due? <laughs> well, so, yeah, well, yes, uh, I, I guess it, it, we, we are, a, are a think tank. I think what I was saying was, um, um, I think I was sharing the analysis in that um, I feel that, it, um, that where, where general practice is at the moment, 
Um, I, as I said, the needs have changed. We've got much more uh, complexity of need presenting itself. And as Claire was saying, people coming back time and time again. And the sense I get that, you know, that because we largely speaking still offer the sort of the 10 minute consultation, that that's that's clearly not some people need much longer consultations and we we've, we've got to get much smarter about how first of all we use the resource that we've got now the, the question about how much extra we need is a, is, is perhaps another one but also 10,000 more GPs right. to stand still but, but also it's how we use our nurses but also beyond the kind of general medical practice how we use pharmacy for example you know I think we've got parts of the uh, NHS provider system that uh, are, are probably not working to their to their full potential or they could provide much more sort of direct support to people i think there are we in a sense you know we do have to think differently i think about the care that we're giving because my sense is that uh, practices uh, gps and their teams are feeling quite beleaguered in lots of cases i mean what here's that it's not working for them economically but also it's not working in terms of job satisfaction and it's uh, it's a not unusual situation to meet a GP such as Helen, uh, who's opted to work as a locum. Now, while there can be some great things about that, it saddens me to some extent if we've got, and I meet quite a lot of GPs who are, who are opting to work in that different sort of way. But of course, that removes that close association of the GP with their population and their practice. And I'm back to where I started there in terms of I think that's our real potential and strength of of general practice so for me it's really thinking differently about how we work with what we've got so that's what we've got within primary care but of course it then takes us into how we work differently with community services with social care and indeed the hospital sector so and I think we're coming to something of a crunch point and that's caused to some extent by the financial situation we're in but also the presenting need and I think trying to deal with both of those in a way that could assure some decent quality of care I mean that's that's at the heart of I think what we're going to be talking about this afternoon. Thanks, Judith. Nav, you have a, a kind of a responsibility, in a sense, as postgraduate dean for this variability in care. What, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I, I sort of think it's very hard to... Uh, I mean, some of the statements that we're making, which is slightly pejorative against against GPs in terms of performance, um, I, I think it's very hard to isolate that from the system. I think Helen was trying to you know, uh, imply that when she was saying that, because actually most of the GPs I know are intuitively, intuitively trying to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing by the patients. And I know people don't always get it right, but generally the intent is good. Uh, so I think what, what where, where problems are identified is because we don't have enough supporting mechanisms to support people to, to make the right clinical decision making perhaps or the right colleague support systems or you know peer-to-peer -peer, uh, reference groups and so on and I know there are easy solutions to put in place but by and large we haven't actually done that so we then expect people to work in quite an isolated way without those support systems and then we use metrics which are the metrics of performance utilisation which are not the metrics that GPs kind of identify with because we're talking about population-based healthcare we should be looking at the metrics of a population which is around uh, integration it's about holistic assessment it's about prevention of admission managing complexity and we don't have metrics I think that necessarily define that very clearly so we're using systems to measure clinical performance in general practice which are largely derived from secondary care utilization type approaches and, and we don't have uh, metrics which measure that qualitative dimension which I think most GPs would excel at having said that I think there are some problems around 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 performance, and so in, in reference to your question around my my role as a GP um, postgraduate dean is to work with people like um, Claire and the college to, to really think about how we how we shape and define the training for our future generalists, not just in general practice, but right across the board. Because I think this is not just about generalism driven through general practice; it's about how we drive generalism, the construct, 
right through the system how we actually make every professional have those generalist values so that you can you can deal with diabetes and the mental health problems of the person with diabetes and not just the the pancreas uh, in, in in that sense so i think i think there's something about how we work collaboratively then to kind of make make an influence that yeah, thanks, Nav. I mean, that's very interesting because you talk about the qualitative versus the metrics and defining quality. So let's have a think for a moment or two about what is good general practice. What do we think good general practice is? I get, should, we really should ask Claire first, shouldn't she? Because she's, <laughs> okay. she, she's uh, the, 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 I mean, the holder of the responsibility <laughs> for us all. If you actually ask patients what is good general practice, they say three very simple things. They say it's a doctor who listens, a doctor who's there, and a doctor who knows what to do. So three simple things, but actually unpicking all of that, it's quite complicated then, because a doctor who knows what to do, what does all of that mean? I think that clearly we can define quality, and we, we have our quality and outcome framework. I think quality and outcome framework rather is rather burdening GPs. I'm not sure it, it's far too much. Uh, uh, we're asked to do far too much. But if you go back to first principles what should we be providing to our patients we should be providing continuity of care and we know continuity improves outcomes in all sorts of ways and we should be providing accessible care because if we can't see the patients in the first place then no matter how good we are uh, they're going to die whilst they're waiting to see us so simple answer I, I do know that it's a very complicated to unpick that but I'm a sort of simplistic type of person the problem with general practice at the moment is we only have three years training. We are GPs three years to learn not just the physical aspects of the human being, but their social, their psychological. We have the shortest training for doctors who have to do the most for more. And I think unless we address that, uh, as Nav was saying, then I think it's going to be difficult in the future to, to deliver high quality care. Helen, what, what do you think about this? I think, it, I think it's a shame that we're in the state that we're in because I think it's a privilege being a GP. I love my time spent opposite patients. And that's when you don't give 10 minutes, you give about 20 minutes and then you know that you're running too late. But actually, if you care enough, you just the demand is just absurd. And I think it's getting the, the balance right. There's some people who come to me who don't need me but need access to somebody better. And I'm still the signposter and I'm doing it too much of my time. And then I get somebody, you know, suicidal in front of me and I need to give them an hour and I need that time. And actually that's what makes the job untenable and makes it too stressful to do because you can't do it to the best of your ability. And I think we're losing quite a lot of job satisfaction because I'm then getting hammered by somebody else because I'm not seeing everyone soon enough or quickly enough. And I, there is something also about how we get the balance right and I need my secondary care colleagues in with me I need a psychiatrist next door for that patient you know we need the model is wrong we can't do Dr Findlay's casebook anymore with the GP there and 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 there for everything and everyone all the time because the demand is too high and I'm very worried that we're turning people away from it because when you get it right and you do it right it's the best job in the world well now I'm going to be controversial what about all this touchy-feely general practice Judith is this good enough? Are we measuring the right things? Well, I, I think um, I, I think what Claire and Helen have been describing 
is is the essence of really good general practice. One question I, I've got uh, for them is, is this thing about access and accessibility? I guess it's accessibility to the GP for who? I mean, Helen's just said she's got people coming to see her, perhaps some of them don't need her time, and then others who desperately need much more of her time. And I think that's the key to quite a lot of this, actually. And there's something for me about... Um, needing uh, whether it's a larger team uh, or a federation or so a collective let's call it a collective of of primary care uh, staff many of whom might be gps but they'll be nurses they'll be pharmacists but they could be sort of community health workers uh, mental health uh, nurses and so on i think that there are smarter ways in which we could be organizing our kind of primary care and general practice around that so that because it feels sometimes like um, general practice has been driven by the de, the kind of access targets and, and all and to sort of deal ever more quickly or promptly with all this presenting demand now which again not all of it needs to come to the GP and use the GP's sort of valuable time and the final point I'd make on this is because Claire talked about continuity and accessibility I'd add to that sort of care coordination and we talk lots about I don't know integrated care and all sorts of conceptual terms but for me really carefully coordinating care particularly for an older person with dementia or a, a, a kind of a quite chaotic family with or, or somebody with a child with disabilities I, th I think for me that coordinating role probably still needs to sit within the general practice team now, again, we've, I think we've got a lot to do to, to work that out because I think when things go wrong, it's often because we're not doing that well. So I think sussing out how to do that coordination and to free up GP or, or community nurse time to do that, I feel we've still got a lot to do there. Can I just come in there? Yes, Sorry. of course. I absolutely agree with Judith, but the problem is at the moment that GPs are heaving under the yeah. workload. Many moons ago, we had a multidisciplinary team within our practice, about 30 strong and we had on-site midwives, on-site pharmacists, on-site physiotherapists. Gradually those have all been peeled away but simultaneously care has been moved from the hospital to the community without simultaneous shift of resources. So I think general practice is, a, is at its tipping point. The GP is ideally placed to do a lot of this and the GP in their DNA wants to coordinate care and in their DNA wants to be to sort out these teams but we can't do it at the moment and what worries me is that nobody's acknowledging that at, at very senior levels and certainly found I came here via a, a very senior financial foundation trust chief executive basically saying general practice needs to change we've seen a hundred percent increase in number of patients attending A&E and it's your fault I said, and we've seen a 100% increase attending our practices. It isn't our fault. Unless we work together, we're not going to find a solution to this. So I agree with what you're saying, but let's actually e examine what's going on at the moment and, and, and start addressing the workforce and the workload issue of general practice before it's too late. Thanks, Sarah. Let, let's come back to NAV. Now, you started this, NAV, your, your <laughs> description of quality and what's good general practice. Just... Reflect again on what you really think is good general practice and what are the barriers 
Okay, I mean, if I could just start that by a sort of uh, a bit of work that we've done in my own practice. Um, I, I went to a, a design, design council event where I, where I heard this term mojos, moments of joy, moments of sorrow that, that patients describe when they, when they connect with their, uh, with their practice. Uh, and, and I went back to my practice and said, let's just apply this kind of methodology on our own practice and see what happens. And actually, what patients are saying is that the, the moments of joy are when they actually meet up with a, with, a, with a doctor they trust who actually listens to what they're saying and actually addresses their their health issues and and works in partnership with them to solve the problem that's great and you know brilliant that's exactly what good journalism is all about but the moment of sorrow are all those bits in the system that block those patients getting to that encounter so there's you know waiting to get an appointment waiting to get on the phone waiting to get your prescription sorted and and I, I can take responsibility for this because I'm talking about my practice here we've got quite a few of those barriers in place uh, for for our patients to access those 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 very brief encounters which which mean a, a great deal to them so this goes back to something Judith was saying I think the model that we've got uh, and you know and you know it's still very much doctor led it's it's based on you know quite an old 1983 type um, primary care act where, where where we still have quite a lot of patients having transactions with doctors and it's quite a sort of uh, spluttering journey for them to, to get to where they need to be and I think we really do need to redesign that we don't want to lose we do not need to lose the we don't okay we do not need to lose the core values of generalist high quality care that, that Claire and others have alluded to but we just need to think about how we enable that those moments of joy to be heightened through through the system. So I think that goes back to things like skill mix. It does go back to things that we've lost, the fragmentation of losing our you know, district nurses and our health visitors and, and that primary healthcare team that used to meet on a weekly basis and discuss complex patients together. We've kind of systematically you know, fragmented all of that away. So, And some of the solutions that we'll be talking about in a little while, I suspect, are about putting all that back together again in, in, in some way. I'm just going back to the bit about training. Um, I, I totally agree that I think training to be a generalist is, is, is the hardest thing to do, and yet we have the shortest training time. But I also think we need to look at that pathway of training a little bit more to see if we can actually maximise those generalist skills in, that, in the time that we've got. Because we still have roughly 50% of our training time for, for generalism through general practice delivered in a hospital-based environment. And I think we just need to think about where's the best, people, where's the best place for people to learn those generalist skills and how we, how we deliver that. So not sure I've answered your question around quality, although I would go back to, to, to the value-laden quality metrics that patients and populations ask for, not the, not the metrics of performance utilisation, which is generally what we, we fall behind because those things are easy to measure. They're not necessarily the things that patients value in terms of quality. Yeah, thanks, Nav. Well, um, Cl- Helen, we, I mean, we've listened a lot to the barriers to good care. Now, <coughs> we may agree with that, but it's not what you read in the newspapers. And the question is, why is it after a decade of unprecedented investment in the NHS is primary care still struggling? I think we don't <coughs> we don't support each other well enough. We work as these tiny little independent businesses that don't necessarily, I think we're beginning to, but we don't necessarily think about the practice down the road and how we could share resources, uh, how we could do things differently. I also think, coming back to the training idea, I think I'm a very different GP now than the one that arrived on the doorstep, fully trained and absolutely a partner. But I was quick, I was efficient, I, I didn't have quite the compassion because you don't have the life that you've been through to get to this point. Whereas now I'm much slower because you can, you can really understand what patients are trying to tell you. And a lot of it that we're dealing with is mental health issues. Um, so we need some 
some more support and we need to go back we keep coming back to that yeah more support more support i mean i hear that but hey we've had so much money yeah. pumped into primary care this is not what the we public want to hear so much money pumped into primary care the vast amount of money that was invested over the last 15 years has found its way to increasing the sub number of subspecialists mm. that we have in hospitals so can we just blow some of these myths we have not had vast amount of money we had a t we had an increase in our income for about a year and we've been punished ever since but in terms of resource allocation the vast amount of resources have gone into hospitals I'm not against hospitals but let's be clear the vast amount of activity takes place in general practice so between 80 and 90 percent of all activity takes place in general practice I do now what a hospital physician would have done 15 years ago I do now what a hospital psychiatrist would have done 10 to 15 years ago and I'd also like to, to blow the myth that it hasn't succeeded because we've had the best outcomes. In 2010, the NHS was delivering fantastic care, both at primary level, even though we had not much resources, but also roundabout population health. So we've got to start saying what's right. General practice has delivered what it said on the tin. It has delivered population health, but it needs to change. And I will actually agree with Helen I think it needs to change. I think the idea of small, and nothing against small, but small units of, of, of doctors working in isolation is not the way we should be moving forward. And the Royal College of GPs supports the federation model. We also lay down the gauntlet that we should be tackling the thorny issue of the independent contractor status. We should be looking at how we deliver out of hours, how we deliver care to complex patients, how we work with our colleagues uh, across the rest of the community uh, health family. But I want to nail the issue that we haven't succeeded. We have succeeded beyond all odds, and we are continuing to succeed, even though at the moment GPs are heaving. We're continuing to deliver what needs to be delivered on the tin. Judith, what do you think? Increased income? Increased input, I should say, in terms of financial investment. There certainly has been increased income, but what about outputs? Well, I think there was, um, I mean, uh, as others have said, over the kind of the decade of if like the labour years, there was clearly there was significant investment in, in the health system. But, but Claire, Claire's right. I mean, it was the secondary care sector that grew most during that, 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 that time. Um, but and I think uh, she's also right in terms of, you know, we saw a number of outcome measures, uh, you know, national and international standards improved during that time. And, you know, patient satisfaction with the NHS was at an all time high, all, all sorts of measures like that. But I think what's also um, significant looking back at that decade, for me, probably the core priority that was, uh, in a sense, placed upon or, or, or the co core target in a sense that was placed upon the health service at that time was sorting out elective care so much was driven by waiting times and waiting lists and in one sense that spilled over into primary care around access to see a gp or a community nurse within with so many hours or whatever it was and it, 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 looking sort of forward now it seems the, the decade we're now in that the priority has to be um, I mean, I don't like to call it non-elective care because that's defining it negatively, but it's kind of care for people with complex needs. Or the, um, and in fact, we know that that's the, the bulk of the work that's both preoccupying general practice and actually is putting pressure on our hospital system as well. So there's something for me about um, if we make that our priority, 
I think that helps us to see, just to start thinking differently about what needs to be done and what we need to do that. And my final point would be, again, looking back at the, the sort of labour years, yes, we had lots of investment, but I think, you know, looking back on it, we weren't as clever as we could have been in looking at how we made the whole system work, the primary and the secondary care part of it. It was, in lots of ways, it was investment in what we'd already got, you know, whether that was new hospitals, new pra- uh, premises for general practice. It didn't tend to be actually about how we're actually going to work differently within that. And, pro- and I think that is our big challenge now. Thank you, Judith. Now, if you were keen to come in there... Well, I just wanted to come in on the point about uh, investment in primary care again. I, I mean, I, I, th- I think, you, Daniel, you're being slightly mischievous there, weren't you? Because uh, because you, you, you were conflating, I think, the uh, the reported increases in GP salaries with uh, with uh, with the actual investment in primary care. And actually, I, I think um, that, that Claire was is right here, that you know there's been a systematic underinvestment in the things that matter in delivering high-quality primary care. So a premises strategy in primary care to actually have, you know, enabled... Or, uh, buildings where people can actually do the right thing. Um, investment in the workforce that we need for for delivering high quality primary care. I think we've all got examples of uh, the, the lack of available practice nurses, nurse practitioners, community nurses, health visitors, all the professionals that you need to have in a system to deliver high quality population healthcare uh, are actually you know, they're just not available at the moment. We haven't we haven't got the right strategy in place to enable that to happen. So so I th- I think um, it, it's it's disingenuous perhaps to suggest that um, that individuals are pocketing large large chunks of money uh, because actually that whole program of investment around primary care has, has, has not been enabled over over the time at the same time there have been investment programs in hospitals and so on so I, th- I think we have to be a little bit careful about that having said that um, I, I just wanted to just push back a little bit to Claire on, on in terms of in terms of where we are with with general practice because I think for all the reasons that we've been talking about um, general practice ability to deliver population-based healthcare to its registered population. Uh, we've lost a little bit of focus on that, in my in my view. I, th- I think we're we're very good at managing the reactive uh, demands of patients. You know, when they can get in to see us, we, we're pretty good at sorting them out, I think. But but actually, there are whole chunks of um, of, of of a practice population that are not. Uh, not being addressed, not not their needs are not being considered, and and again, if I apply that to my own practice of about nine thousand patients, I'm very aware about twenty five to forty percent of that registered population have not had any recent uh, health profiling information, uh, and that's because we're too busy doing all the reactive stuff. So, so I think there does need to be a little bit of a, 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 a I won't use the word redesign, a, a, you know, a reevaluation of the way that we work uh, to be able to address that. Because if you go back to what was really good about general practice, going back to you know hundreds of years, and and Julian Tudor Hart and on it was our ability to reach out into the community and actually make a difference to all the patients that we take responsibility for and I think we've just lost a little bit of focus on that and we need to revisit that I think if we're really going to claim the ground about high quality journalism. Okay, well, let's think about the future. I mean, uh, now you mentioned premises and workforce, and Judith, you mentioned uh, um, uh, elective care as being priorities. Helen, you mentioned mental health, and uh, overall, uh, now you mentioned about looking for at the population. So let's think a little bit about the future. What do we think the future of general practice is going to look like? So let, let's go to Claire first. What, what do you see as the redesign? What design would? What, how would you see general practice in the future? Well, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, we've been thinking about this a lot and we have a paper coming out called the 2022 Vision for General Practice. I think the future of general practice will still have to make sure that we build on what works, Donal. We have to build on a registered list delivering first contact care to patients across the physical, psychological and social domains. And I think we absolutely have to do that. But I think the future, if we fast forward, I think if we look back we look forward 10 years and then see how we'll be working. I think we will be working as groups of practices, as federations, within with many more community-based staff. Uh, I 
talk talk about federations being uh, provider organisations, but with some commissioning role as well, with possibly hypothecated budgets. I think we will be delivering care in a different way. I think we will be much more in terms of integrated case management for our high-risk populations, spending a lot longer with, with a smaller group of patients while still doing first contact care, but in a different way. So we'll be leading integrated teams. I also think we'll be using much more of e-health. I think the patient of the future will be able to engage with their GP practice remotely from registration to treatment and discharge through uh, electronic prescribing and, and electronic referrals. And I think the patient of the future, we will be looking at health literacy and actually making sure that the patient of the future understands much more how to have a a relationship, an equal relationship with their GP. And I think there'll be all sorts of things on the periphery that will be different. Where I think some of the differences may also be, I think we'll be looking at much more hospital doctors in this primary care federation not with them acting as sort of consultants to the the senior registrar GP, but in a much more equal way with a hospital consultant, the the generalist physician, the generalist psychiatrist, the generalist paediatrician within that organisation. Can I just stop you there for a moment, Claire, before you move on to this integrated care and to talk a little about, about some of the things you mentioned in terms of federations. This is a tricky question. Is the day of the independent contractor over? Is the day of the small business over? Are we talking about large business conglomerates? Are we talking about big private groups taking over general practice? How do you feel about that? I think we're looking at different models, Donal. I think we need to look at pharmacy and where pharmacy's at. Pharmacy has a mix of large conglomerates, large uh, uh, private providers employing uh, salaried pharmacists and still your independent providers. And I think we're looking at different solutions. There's no problem with foundation trusts employing GPs, but it is not the only model. I'm going to come to Judith now. Judith, cottage industry? The day of the GP cottage industry over? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think general practice is a cottage industry at the moment, actually. So I think think it's already actually a mix of models. And I think what we we need to do uh, more carefully and more thoughtfully is look at the kind of models of general practice we've got, both in this country and to some extent internationally as well, because one of the great strengths of general practice is its ability to innovate and to spot opportunities. And it doesn't tend to go around asking for permission. <laughs> it tends to sort of get on and do and wait and, uh, and, and hope it'll get forgiveness if, if that's needed. Um, and, and so what I think we've got, yes, we have got um, you know, quite a, a lot of small organisations, some of them highly effective, others maybe less so. But we've got things like the federated model where practices are working in that joint way. We're actually seeing in some places some very large partnerships or what people are calling super partnerships where practices who've got sufficient trust in one another have um, have, have actually you know undertaken a formal business merger to form. I mean, we've got some, we're hearing about some now 50, 60,000 population base, so really significant provider organisations. Yes, some sort of involvement of the corporates, but I think... Um, what we need to do is to be looking at these different models of care, s- studying what works well about them, but also what's perhaps where they're struggling, 
and, and critically at a national level, starting to understand what's either enabling them to achieve what they want to do or what's getting in the way. Because the other point we mustn't forget in all of this, it's back to the issue of when we're talking about Helen being a locum now. I, I think we've got to make sure that the models of primary care and general practice we've got, that they work for patients, but also that they work for the, the practitioners, for the professionals, because, you know, the, the general practice workforce has changed. And um, Claire or Craig, is it about half of GPs are in a sort of salaried or sessional roles now? Something about that, more in London. Yeah, so the point being, you know, in a sense, the independent contractor model arguably is is evolving and has, has, has changed anyway. Um, but I think it is back to this point that we do need some careful thought because we are at a point where we can't just let everything evolve. It needs some serious evaluations and serious investment to move forward. And in fact, I mean, we at the Nuffield Trust are actually doing some work jointly with our colleagues at the King's Fund, really trying to understand what are the models of primary care that are there, uh, I say nationally and internationally, and to try, but to take that and say, what is it we need to do to build something sustainable for the, for the future? Because I think we need some of the thinking and research actually to support what's actually happening on the ground and the, the innovation that's, that's coming forward. Thanks, Susan. Now, I'm going to come to you in a moment to talk about workforce issues and how that's influenced, but I want to come to Helen first. Helen, this, this, this picture of general practice in the future is so different to the picture that you and I learned in Devon and worked with in Devon, the whole primary continuing care based around small practices. Gosh, this is a brave new world. Uh, yeah, I don't know that it is that different to the reality now. And I think that the continuity of care is something that we all enjoy and that's why we want to be in general practice. But most of my partners, when I was a partner, didn't want a thing to do with the business side of the of the practice and let me ca carry on running it because they trusted me to do it to the best of my ability. And they then could concentrate on seeing patients and that's what they wanted to do. I think the difficulty here is going to be not losing our ability to innovate and do what we needed to do. And we do not want to become like the learned helplessness of quite a lot of consultants in secondary care, where they can't do that because the managers say no, even if they think it's better for patient care. Whereas in general practice, we will do what we want to do. And we will give our phone numbers to the patients if that's, you know, what we need to do. And we do do it. And the patients don't abuse it. They don't ring every two minutes, you know, but that's how we want to run our services. So I think that... You know, there, it's it's already not quite the model that we grew up with when we were younger anyway. Um, but I don't, I think, every, well, you sort of shrink away from the idea of it becoming a corporate body that takes over and manages us. I don't fancy that. Yeah, I mean, what you say, Helen, it's very, there are two contrasting things in what you say in that the personal care where you give away the phone number, but also this big conglomerate federation where that where it's anonymous rather than personal. Now, I mean, we're talking now about this new workforce and how we're going to create this workforce. How, who, what type of people are you training? Who's going to run this general practice in the future? OK, well, can, can I just go back to this bit about, um, uh, you know, sort of federations of practices and, 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 and the personalised model versus a sort of large industrial kind of model that, 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 that's been described. I, mean, I, I think we've got to understand that um, uh, patients and populations vary hugely in, in you know, sort of changes in, in distance and in, in the demography changes quite quite considerably particularly in London so so we cannot have a one-size-fits-all solution uh, to uh, to some of the some of the some of the challenges that we face and I think therefore whatever the contracting levers that need to be put in place have got to respect the fact that there'll need to be very locally determined solutions for certain problems and that might mean individual um, small practices but connected in some way uh, by back office functions or some of the managerialization that's needed to 
you know, provide some economies of scale, but still allowing that sort of very personalised access uh, at the front door because lots of patients still very much like their, their little practice where they can go to to get whatever they need to get sorted out. So, so we mustn't discount the importance of that. But I think those solutions are evolve from organic growth of, of the needs of a population, needs of local colleagues working together. And I take Helen's point that the traditional general practice mentality has been not much about collaboration. It's always been about you know, a little island working on its own, but we need to empower that to change in some way so we actually share some of the best practice that's, that's needed, but also help and support colleagues in different organisations. Yeah, I mean, okay. that, that sounds good, but tell me about the workforce. How's it going to happen? Who's okay. going to do it? How are they so, going to do it? So I, th- I think what we, what we need is a coherent uh, education training model that supports delivery of multi-professional education training in these sorts of settings that we've been talking about. So in a federated primary care environment where providers come together for the purpose of multi-professional education training. I, 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 what you're saying is brilliant. Okay, who's going to do it? Well, okay, so, so to, to, to let you know that that is possible, um, we in South London have started an initiative where actually we're encouraging providers of primary care and pharmacy and and community services to come together and coalesce around an educationally governed system to support some of the multi-professional education training things that we've been talking about. Claire mentioned earlier about specialist training occurring in in, in primary care settings. That's absolutely right. If you're going to be a diabetologist, you need to learn about your diabetes out in the community, not in in a tertiary institution somewhere. But we then have to create the right environment where these people access uh, that, 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 those sorts of problems. So when I go to this federated practice, who will I see? Well, it's not a federated practice. It would be perhaps a, a number of providers, GP providers, pharmacy providers, connected together in some way. So it doesn't have to be one large organisation. It's actually, a, it's actually a, a union of providers coming together for the, for around a common purpose. In this case, say education training. We know we have capacity problems in terms of training GPs at the moment. Um, we've got uh, both, particularly if the length of training changes, uh, we don't have necessarily enough educational capacity within one organisation. So we have to think about how we share that across local providers of care, but have the same educational governance around that. So you can you can actually take care of those trainees in a responsible way. Okay, thank you, Judith. Looks like I'm not going to see a GP. I think we well. We are going to see a GP, and I think within, I mean, th- this talk about whether you call it a federation, a network, a super partnership, I want to say you can call it what you will. I think what those have to be, they have to combine the best of current general practice and what we've talked about earlier that patients want. So they can go to the local practice, and that's, I mean, I think that's deep in the DNA of British people because we've, we've lived with that for so many years, and it's what we want that we can go to, to that practice. Now, yes, for, we probably will still for now see the GP. Now, the question is, um, it was the point Claire was making about the kind of uh, a patient, the patient of the future, understanding that sometimes, though, um, we may see the nurse. But that already happens if, I don't know, if you have your child's having vaccinations or having your smear. You know, in this country, you'd, you'd, you'd see that you'd make a, a, an appointment actually directly with the practice nurse anyway, or the practice would make sure you did that. But I think the key to the federated model is you have that personal, local uh, place to go that you've, you've belonged to. But behind that, uh, it, it can send you to elsewhere within its network that if it feels that you need to actually see the GP with a special interest in gynecology who happens to be on the other, other side of the, the town or uh, or it might actually not very far away at all, but also thinks that you need an ultrasound. Um, you know, there's something else you need, but that's provided within that network. They can either get that provided for you in your local practice or you go somewhere a bit further away, but without having, in a sense, to go to the, the hospital. So 
it's the gateway into a wider network of services. And I think where we've thought of general practice as gatekeeping secondary care, I think it's that practice as, as gatekeeping or just helping you into actually a network of other services. But I think that we, we shouldn't lose the point about how, how we're going to get the patient of the future to, uh, to, in a sense, almost be slightly weaned off the idea that it is always the GP that you see. But on the other hand, to understand that some huge advantages that when... Um, I mean, someone who's living with dementia and a range of other uh, complex needs and highly supported by health and social care, that that sort of uh, uh, individual, when they need uh, engage the practice, they can have the half an hour or the hour because they're going to need that time to help um, or just to listen to them, actually. But then to do that really complex sort of coordination of their care and then let the rest of the family know what's happening and all of that. I think we have to ask Claire here because Nav is talking about working with the pharmacists and the nurses and Judith is talking about this network. So it looks like we're going to have to change the name of the college, the Royal College of Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, who will you see tomorrow, Donal? Well, you could see me. You could see our physician assistant. If you're a woman and pregnant, you could see the midwife or you could see the nurse. You could see the pharmacy next door. But actually... The person that's best to see, especially for first contact care, for that undifferentiated illness, is me, the GP. And I am best at that. And I'm not saying that with an arrogance. I am de facto best. The GP keeps the NHS sustainable. Who you may see in terms of complex care, actually, probably the practice nurse, the GP spending longer, but the skills of looking after somebody with complex problems are actually different skills from from doing what is really scary, which is first contact care, undifferentiated illness. So, and then you asked another question. You said, who's going to do this? I came away from, I've come here from uh, one of our meetings with our next generation of GPs. There are a whole bunch of fantastic, dare I say young, they are young, some of them not so young, fantastic young doctors coming up behind me and behind Helen and behind Nav who will provide general practice of the future. But what we must do, what the leaders must do, is make sure that the conditions they work with are safe enough for them to deliver the sort of general practice they train to do and grow and start to delivering the other bits, such as the integrated care. Uh, we talk about micro teams within practice using telecare. And what I'm worried about is we're taking our eye off the ball. We're taking our eye off the ball because we haven't got enough GPs. And I flippantly said we need 10,000 more GPs. That translates to one more GP per practice. We need 10,000 more GPs just to stand still. We need longer training and we need to spend longer with our patients, even for that first contact care, which I do very skillfully but very scarily in 10 minutes. I think we need a minimum of 15 minutes to do that. So if anything happens, whatever our vision is, it has to be predicated on more GPs spending longer with their patients and communities with longer training. Helen? I think there's also a big concern at the moment about the number of GPs that are about to leave general practice because they have delivered so far you know they absolutely have delivered but it's not sustainable the personal toll is too high at the moment and there's a survey by the um, South of England uh, South West um, LMC's and 2,700 doctors have replied and they're saying that they are going to have to work harder to maintain their incomes as they are at the moment and actually a lot of them, particularly the 45 to 60-year-olds, are looking elsewhere for other forms of income. They don't want to do it at this pace anymore. If we lose that cohort of really strong, very good, particularly at the, the first contact um, uh, appointments, 
we are absolutely going to grind to a halt and we need to think very quickly about what we can do now because we might have these youngsters but they're not cooked yet, they're not ready and uh, we can't lose this cohort of, of GPs. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 you paint a, a rather dramatic picture there and it looks like we have a problem with manpower and sustainability. It looks like we have a very different pattern of primary care, a very different design of primary care with very different priorities. Judith, do the patients know <laughs> this? What do patients think about this? What, has anyone really told them that the GP that they thought they were getting doesn't exist anymore? No, I don't think they have. Really. Well, I mean, I think that's something that overall, that kind of as a as a health system, um, as a policy or political community, I think we've been pretty poor, actually, at um, being honest with the public about a number of things. First of all, about the financial situation that the NHS finds itself in, but also what that com- um, combined with changing needs actually translates into, whether that's about what a district general hospital of the future will need to look like or indeed a community hospital um, or, or a general practice. So I think we ca- so many of these conversations we have within, let's call them professional communities but we don't have them uh, more broadly and more honestly and to some extent I think you know if we look at something like education I think we hear much more debate about schools and universities and the exam system and how it could and should be it feels like sometimes we you know we have more of that and yet in another public service the health service I don't quite always understand why but I I don't think we have had that discussion Um, and I think actually particularly around general practice, we could have that discussion with the public because I think the vast majority of people, you know, really value their general practice. And they, and as Claire was saying, they want it to be there and they want the GP to listen and to do the right thing. Um, but I think, you know, uh, but they also have some frustrations about it. I'm sure, you know, many people would have frustrations that they can't always email the GP. They can't have direct phone access in the way that perhaps with some other services they can have. So, but I think we could put those two things together and start to have the debate about, well, actually, we know it needs to change. And it's some of the reasons why we've not been able to and to sort of open some of that up. And I, I guess that would also take us along the road of helping to develop the, was it the patient of the future was the, the term uh, Claire you so I think we've got a lot more to do around that um, and because sorry the, the other bit I'd just throw in, into the mix something we haven't talked about yet this afternoon I for me we've got to do some more thinking with the public and I think the public are very ready for this one about out of hours care um, and I think you know for, my own view would be we haven't got that right at the moment and I think implicit in what a lot a lot of what we've been saying this afternoon is we somehow would want primary care to be sort of there for us for our families for our communities in in a real 24 7 way um and i think uh, and until we do that um you know we're whistling in the wind about integrated care i think uh, if we're really honest you know a lot of what we want to happen we haven't got the kind of just the sheer capacity there for for primary care to deliver that so I just wanted to feed that bit into the discussion because I think it is it is around that that 24-7 part of it yeah I mean it, it sounds to me just just reflecting what you're saying that the 24-7 idea is gone I mean we you're, you're not going to see a GP during the day and in fact for 16 hours of the day it's contracted out to an out of our service so this continuity this personal continuity of care seems to be seems to be gone I think uh, actually 
I don't know whether you said six hours or 16 hours. 16, a eight hours of, of a work. Well, no, no, no. I mean, GPs are contracted more or less eight to eight. So it's not, so 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. is what the more or less every GP in the country is providing. Okay, five days a week. I think the GP of the future will be providing out of hours again. I think it will be providing personalised out of hours within a group organisation where not to everybody, not personalised to everybody, but those with end of life care, those with complex needs and those of our patients that we know ring the hospital 70, 80 times a year and we need to be case managing them. This isn't about, as when I came into general practice, going out in my pyjamas and doing all night, but it is a different model of general practice. But again, it's predicated... And you're right, Donal and, and, and Judith, we have to involve the public because the problem about general practice is we just get negative news. The Daily Mail is the, is the great place for telling us how bad we are and how rich we are. We want to do a good job. We want to provide continuity in and out of hours, but we cannot provide it out of hours at the moment, not with the current workforce. Given increase in workforce, of course we will find solutions and we're already. I left general practice, I didn't leave, I'm in general practice, but before the last contract, I think it was the 2004, I was loose track, we were just about to provide 24-hour care to our population of 50,000, but then we opted out of general, out of out of hours and it all changed. But most of general practice was at that position of providing personalised out of hours care across a 50,000 population, joining up with their neighbouring practices. And I think that's the future, named lead, etc., etc., etc. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Judith, for bringing up the out of hours because I think this is very interesting. Now, let me ask Nav and Helen. First, Nav, the people that you are training, looking at them, when you look at the people that you are training, are they prepared to take on out of hours? And, and Helen, when you look at your, your former partners, would they be prepared to take on out of hours? We'll ask Nav first. Okay, well, I mean, at the moment, the, uh, the, the, the curriculum for GP training does define uh, uh, regular experience for our trainees in out of hours. Uh, it's, very, it's part of the mandatory requirements for them to be, to be licensed. But, but, I, but I think the, the, you know, the, the bigger purpose behind your question here is that actually um, none of us mind working out of hours. Actually, it's not a problem. Um, you know, when you look them between the eyes... Uh, and you ask it, it, them straight out, are true. you prepared to work out of hours? Some of our some of our young doctors are very prepared to work out of hours, but but the reason that it's difficult is because actually the environment again that supports them working out of hours is not there. So trying to arrange a palliative care, you know, a procedure on a Sunday morning, with with a fragmented nursing service and no access to social care, is actually incredibly challenging, and it sometimes takes two or three hours on one problem. Now that's the sort of thing that really um, reduces morale, makes people pull their hair out and, and, and not want to engage with. So, so I think out of hours is fine. We've got to look at the entire system because if we want to expect hospital colleagues to work uh, you know, seven days a week, we need to have access to diagnostics, we need to have access to, to community services, we need to have access to all the bits that make the system work. Now under those conditions, I think people would more than be more than willing to work out of hours because actually doing a Saturday afternoon uh, instead of a Monday morning might be very desirable to, to, to someone with a small family, for example. So, so I, I don't think we should just brush that away. I think it's, it's definitely something that's, that's doable, but we have to look at the entire system design in order to support that and not just focus on one bit of it. Helen, the red eye shift. Are you going to do the red eye shift? Or are your um, colleagues going to do the red eye shift? Yeah, and, and to be fair to my partners, they did do the red eye shift. They had no issue with doing it. Um, uh, I think what really frustrates me is that I think one thing GPs can say they've done extremely well is the IT. 
We have fabulous systems and we know what's happened to those patients. We can tell you that they stopped Ramapril three years ago because they got a cough, whereas the hospital system for IT is hopeless in comparison to what we've got. If I could do out of hours with access to the patient notes, it would not be a problem and we could give better quality care. And I think actually shame on the NHS for the IT system that it hasn't provided across the system. Patients probably don't know that there are records which are unbelievably good in most general practice. They can't, the hospital doctor can't access. I still wait for maybe an email um, back from the consultant, but usually a typed letter three or four weeks later. It's not good enough care compared to what I'm offering as a GP. And if we had that IT system that worked and we could all access it out of hours, yes, it wouldn't be a bad shift to do. Thank you very much, Han, because what you've said is something really, really important, and that's one of the really positive things. The IT system investment and the IT system in primary care is tremendous. It's been marvellous for... Uh, uh, as a baseline for research. I mean, we have some tremendous research from, from, from UK primary care based on our data systems. And it's refreshing, uh, Judith, to hear this because what we've heard so far is problems with resources. So you have the ear of the government, Judith. We have a problem. You know, there is not going to be more money. How are we going to cope with primary care with less money? Well, I think, I think it's back to what colleagues have been talking about this afternoon, that it's rather than just thinking about what do we do about primary care or what do we do about general practice out of hours, we have got to have a, a really hard think about, you know, what is what do we do about certainly the part of the system that's dealing with, let's, let's stick, if, you know, back to my point about we focused on elective care in the last decade. In this decade, we need to focus on, let's call it people with complex needs. But, you know, I think, you know, how are we going to sort of um, sort out services for those people now i think there is an opportunity because our hospital colleagues are having to think hard about 24 7 working particularly weekend and, and nighttime working and i think there's an opportunity while they're having to do that thinking and some of their raw colleges the uh, the surgeons and the physicians have been giving careful thought to that i think there's a real opportunity to sort of feed in the the primary care and general practice part of that but something i, I was really uh, struck by just now I think it's when Nav was talking about the reality if if you're working out of hours what about the community health services and the social care because if you haven't got access to those you say you, you're struggling anyway to sort of if do what we're talking about that 24 7 work is if you can't find the the specialist community nurse to go and I don't know catheterize the patient on a, on a Sunday morning or whatever it is you know some of those relatively straightforward things that are just really difficult to organize so I think it, it is about how are we doing it? Now then, I'm sure you're then going to say, well, who's going to do that? I think we haven't talked about clinical uh, commissioning yet this afternoon um, and the clinical commissioning groups. But uh, I sort of, for me, I mean, we've got oodles of, uh, or a lot of research from the past about primary care led commissioning. What we know it's really good at is actually planning and developing extended primary and community health services. So I think a good clinical commissioning group could take a real role in, in a sense, either developing or leading these federated practices or the, or the networks and, and starting to sort out some of what we've been talking about. Do you know what I mean? So it's not the whole health system, but the system for this part of South Birmingham or, or this part of North London. Are you, are you, I think, and I think that's where we could have some really creative sort of GP and primary care leadership helping to make some of this happen so it's not just happening in ivory towers or 
policy circles. I'd come to Helen here. Helen, you have some experience of commissioning or the sort of shadow type commissioning groups. Do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, do we have the expertise? Do GPs have the public health expertise to commission? Um, yes, I, they don't have the expertise individually necessarily, but they have access to the resources that they need. My anxiety is that all the good and natural leaders have gone off to the clinical commissioning groups and will spend an awful lot of time taking on the acute sector and we won't get away from the slightly adversarial um, way that it's been run so far, commissioning. And that worries me because I think we need some of the leaders back in primary care helping us develop as a provider. And yeah, I, I laugh at Judith. I'm not because I agree with you 100%. That's why I laugh. I smiled when you said that because... Way back when, when clinical commissioning was first, I stood up and said good commissioning starts in the consulting room. That actually, as providers, and actually the reforms, and I know we're not talking about the reforms, but the reforms just missed a trick and set us back decades. We needed to focus on provider reform. We needed to focus on GPs getting together to find out how they will improve their role as providers, working in federations, taking on, as I said, some some commissioning role around things that we know about. So, for example, community care, palliative care, some of the big issues that we know about, uh, some of the big issues such as drug and alcohol problems but predominantly working as provider organisations within federations. And what I worry about is the, the best GPs, are, you know, a lot of fantastic GPs are going off, sitting on committees, which we know very early on, they're bored out of their brain. We know that because the King's Fund did a study on it and they showed that GPs were fantastic at the transformational stuff, but not at the transaction stuff. So what do we do? We put GPs on boards where they're least useful. And what a nonsense this all is. And if there's anything to encourage us, I feel encouraged by the debate today because we are so much in agreement. And I didn't think that would be the case. And I think what looking forward, things are very positive because actually we're all on the same page. We all want the same things. Best for patients, invest in primary community care. Let me come back to you on that, Judith, because you're very enthused, um, Claire and Judith both are very enthused about commissioning. Um, if commissioning is so wonderful, why have Scotland, and I ask you and this as, as commissioning I, I, is not wonderful. As chair of the whole college, why have Scotland decided not to go down this road? Well, commissioning. Yeah. We're not in favour of commissioning, not in terms of putting GPs heading up. Uh, I mean, I take my hat off to GPs that are doing it. So please take, if you're listening to this, what you're doing, GPs out there sitting on CCGs, fantastic, well done. Those of you that are making a difference, well done. But I don't think you're best placed there. I don't think GPs naturally are good commissioners. We know that from fund holding. We know that from, from, from local commissioning groups. GPs are innovators. They want quick fixes to solutions that they see in front of us. They're brilliant at provider. They're brilliant at changing things. Scotland, fantastic what Scotland's doing, integrating health and social care, looking at, at, at not at removing GPs as commissioners. doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a role in, in, in planning services for patients, population health. And actually, I think we should have some budget to look at some of the things that will make a difference to our patients, such as uh, community care. But I think the idea of us commissioning how many wheelchairs should be in a population or, or what the, the, the yet again redesign another diabetic care pathway, what a waste of time. Yeah, I want to come to Nat here because I, I, I don't want to focus on this. I mean, Scotland have decided to go their way and it's it's not the way that the English NHS have gone. And I hear you talking about integrated health and social care. And I'm afraid in Northern Ireland, where we've integrated health and social care for many years, it has been 
it certainly has not been a success. So I'd love to hear you talk about that, Claire, but Navier is very keen to come in on the commission. Well, I suppose I have to kind of put my hand up here and, and, and at some point support the, uh, the clinical commissioning uh, policy development right, right at its inception, though, because I think one of my aspirations when, 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 this, when this all started, the reform started, was, was generally to start thinking about how, how GPs individually can influence some of the commission decisions that are made on behalf of their patients. And having come from it through an era of PCT commissioning, uh, where where actually you know arguably some of the some of the more increased fragmentation occurred and uh, some of the health inequality challenges weren't addressed, it was real hope that if we could align the financial aspects of commissioning with the clinical com- uh, aspects of commissioning, there'd be a, there'd be some some change around around that. Unfortunately, what's happened, I think Claire's described that very uh, very clearly, is that that in some clinical commissioning groups, and this is by no means uh, universal, in some clinical commissioning groups, uh, the emphasis is very much on the language of procurement and competition and the manage, managerialization of clinicians in, in, into the system that we've come from. And there are some clinical commission groups where actually there's been a genuine attempt to commission integrated care, trying to bring together providers in the networks that we were talking about earlier, wrapping around community services, diagnostic, mental health provision, around local populations, all the stuff that we've been talking about, that there have been some clinical commission groups who are starting to get into that the space. But having said that, there are also a lot of clinical commission groups where they're, they're still kind of preoccupied with a three hundred odd PCT prescribed functions and and, and, all, and all the sort of governance arrangements around that. So, so so I think a lot of it's down to interpretation and how, how people are seeing it through. But but I think the sort of ability to commission integrated care where provider networks are are developed is is absolutely the the holy grail. And and that was my hope is my hope that the clinical clinical commissioning policy will go towards so we actually start thinking about integrating health and social care budgets creating integrated care organizations making that sort of support for the sort of population-based health care that we've been talking about actually happen okay so let, let's just have a little think now we've talked a little bit about general practice training we've talked a little bit about the workforce we've talked about how GPs may or may not be at the front line anymore and as they move further and further away from the front line we're now talking them about them as managers so GPs aren't really there to be seen and that's what the patients will tell us. So let's go back to the patients again because you know we've been talking here for quite a long time and we really haven't spoken much about the patients. So let's talk about patients and how patients see primary care, what they want and how we can be more responsive to patients needs. Helen, do you want to talk about that and how we can be more responsive to patients' needs? I mean, how do patients contact the surgery? Can they get an email? Can they speak to a doctor? How, how do they actually access care? I think we have got to change quite rapidly because we still have the slightly more old-fashioned system where they have to work through a receptionist to, you know, bless them, I couldn't do their job. But but they they are seen as a block to getting access to us and though practices are changing and they are doing much more telephone contact with patients it's still not enough and if you talk to some of the younger generation they probably want to text they probably we need to use the um, IT that we've got and we can use and I think I think Claire mentioned it earlier that we could do e-consultations and we can do things differently it's it is a bit of a leap of faith and and most GPs I know, as soon as I clap eyes on the patient, I know quite quickly whether they're ill or not. And that, if you can't do that, it's difficult. And it, it is a different skill set that we need there. And, but maybe we need to train that into in, when we, we're bringing up these new GPs. Now, how are we getting on with patients? 
Tell me from the patient's perspective. I suppose, I mean, I think I all, all the things we've been talking about are, are, are ways of actually empowering patients to take some responsibility for, for their health care when they're ill or when, they, when they're suffering with a long-term condition, but also to start providing information to patients in the shape and size that they want at a time when they want and an access format that they want. So that actually it's not based on actually having to have a transaction with a clinician all the time to, to, to get through. So I, I agree with you. I don't think we're very very sophisticated at the moment in doing that, but I do know of some practices in South East London, uh, not too far away from here, where, uh, where, where, some, where some of those, some of those uh, access arrangements with patients using technology are being, are, are being developed. I might let my colleague talk about that uh, in a while. But, uh, but actually, I think, I, think there's, there's, I think there is a strong appetite to start developing these, uh, these ways of access. But there, there are also some issues Around, around that. I mean, I think, I think we're going back to how do we train patients to use services pro- appropriately. Not every patient wants to Twitter in for a consultation with their, uh, with, with their, with their clinical, cl- clinical colleagues. So, so we need to be sensitive and mindful of that. And there's also data and security issues and all the information governance issues that kind of don't allow necessarily a, a free-for-all in, that, in that, that sort of way. But I think using technology and, and mobile applications for people to access healthcare, monitor their own personal data around health, maybe share that with a colleague remotely, get some advice, etc. That's definitely the way we need to go uh, and actually build a system around that. Going back to training, um, I, think, I think education training over the years has, has been very much about doctors being information givers generally. Our history is about you know, patient coming along, getting information from a doctor. That's changing. So we're now changing the role of a doctor from being an information giver to being a care navigator, someone who helps people navigate the sort of morass of information available and help them make the right healthcare choice. And I think that's a very different, a very different skill set that needs to be developed. And I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of in terms of really nailing that issue. But it's definitely where we need to go over the next few years. Claire, just going on from that, when I as a GP read the newspapers and patients' complaints about general practice and how we're not meeting their needs, I personally feel under siege. So when you, as a representative of the college, meet patients' groups, what do you hear and what do you tell them in response? I mean, they tell me that and, and I feel very sad because I feel I want to explain, but I know that it's very difficult to explain to someone who's representing people that are sick, uh, people that are sad, and that people that are vulnerable. And and I feel very sad for my profession, which is where I started this podcast by saying my poor GPs, they're trying to do their best. So what I try and do is actually to try and explain and, and to say, look, we are trying our best. Going back to the issue about e-health, I, I, I mean, e-health works best when you know the patient through continuity. So again, it, it's an adjunct to continuity. Clearly, there are ways, um, and our practice has invested a lot of money in, in creating podcasts and doing e-communication and doing first contact care through email. I have used remote care for about 15 years when it wasn't fashionable. And just today, I got an email from a patient who I have, through entirely remotely, the patient I know well, email, I emailed the consultant to see if he could see her. I sent the chosen book. I emailed the patient to say when the appointment was. I've now got her, both her hips are going to be done very shortly, and she's emailed me to tell me this is happening. So an entire referral pathway done in, entirely remotely, but because I know her best. I know her. I know her. I've known her for very years. So we will move on, and we will try and develop new ways, but it's not a nirvana out there. Unless we get continuity to trust the patient to use remotely, 
you know, they're not sitting there in pain. And also to make sure that the, the GP and the patient, the patient has got health literacy, which I come back to, the GP can take that risk, the, the defence organisations can indemnify you for that. So there are things, but you know, we can do it. I'm, I'm a great optimist, Donal. I'm a real optimist. I, I think that the healthcare of the future is very, is positive as long as we invest in general practice. I try and explain to patients, but I, I, in a way, we have to understand where patients are coming from, the, the, as I said at the beginning. Judith, let me come back to you for the last word. Nuffield Trust has done a lot of work on, on general practice, a lot of work looking at different models of primary care. I'm going to ask you as independent, as a patient's advocate, uh, Claire has told us that general practice is doing its best. Is it good enough? Well, I, I think all of us in our professional lives, we could always all do better. So I think, I, I, I think general practice would probably be the first to acknowledge that. And I think just on that point of what patients want from general practice and the sort of access they want along with continuity and coordination, I think we clearly have, you know, we have some really excellent practice. But I guess the, the final word I'd, I'd leave us is perhaps where we started with about some of the variation. Not all practices do offer that. And I guess some are probably scared of doing that because, you know, I'm, I'm of that generation that's come quite late to Twitter and uh, iPhones and things, you know, we're sort of getting to grips with it. And of course, there's a generation uh, above us that find that some of that even more difficult. And of course, they're often the people with the, uh, uh, well, the, the patients will find that difficult. But actually, we've got to acknowledge that some, of the, that some of the professionals, that's quite hard. And it's back to, again, what we've talked about this afternoon, that I think whilst the beauty of general practice is its independent, innovative nature, that can mean sometimes it lacks some of the support structures and some of that investment in you know, what I guess we'd call improvement sort of support and science in, in, in other areas. So I think on this one about whether it's the use of email or phone consultations, and actually what that means, because it's going to mean changes to how one organises one's general practice potentially and how professionals work and setting up websites, all sorts of things. You know, practices will need help doing that at a time when we've said they haven't got much, um, hardly any space in the day to even start thinking about that. So I think as we think about the sort of general practice and primary care we want for the future as we have that discussion with patients and the public we've got to remember though it is going to need support and investment to actually make that happen because otherwise those that innovate will always innovate in one sense but I'm afraid there will be some who are always going to need and support encouragement um, and if necessary actually some quite serious chivying to, to make that happen because you know in a in a universal national service there's something about uh, I think some basic requirements. If we decide it's right, we should all have some degree of email and phone access to our primary care professionals. Well, then actually all of us need to be able to have that. It won't be good enough that some can have it and some can't. So that for me is where we, we could do better. Thank you very much. Now, we're going to finish, but you may have some things that you wish to say before we finish. So anyone have any issues that I, I've cut them short on that would like to expand on a little bit or... Perhaps they feel they didn't say it the right way or would like to say it again. I think for me the only thing we've missed out on is the collaboration with secondary care. We haven't mentioned that and we have to stop this primary care, secondary yeah. care. <coughs> OK, well, let's talk about that for a moment or two. Claire, in terms of this collaboration, primary care, secondary care, I mean, you negotiate very much on behalf of the college with our secondary care representatives. What's, how's it going? What do they think? <laughs> 
Where do they think we're going to be in the future? I still think that most people think we have a national hospital service. I still think that most people think that the GP has gone into general practice because somehow they're a failed cardiothoracic surgeon. And I still think that most consultants, and please forgive me if you're listening to this and you're a consultant, think that GPs are somehow their senior registrars and we get the letters, you know, please do this, GP. And, uh, you know, it's we're not seen as equals, not really, and we have to work hard to be seen as equals. Even now, I run an integrated care service, I run uh, an integrated mental health service. It's taken three years, I think, for the secondary care practitioners to understand the skill of the generalist practitioner. It doesn't mean I don't understand their skills, I do, but to really understand what my skill is. So yes, of course we've got to work across the divide, and of course we've got to make sure that we work equally, and when we look forward into the future, they understand us, and they can only understand us, I think, by spending time and seeing the fear, the fear of telling somebody that there's nothing wrong when actually you're not 100% sure, but you have to manage uncertainty because if you don't, we'll flood the hospitals. Until they understand that and see it in its complexity, I don't think they'll respect us and want to work with us as much as we want to work with them. Thank you very much. Judith, primary and secondary care, I mean, you meet a lot of consultants as well. Are we speaking the same language? I think, um, I think actually, um, we, we've, we've talked about clinical commissioning this afternoon and some of the, the opportunities that presents and also some of the limitations uh, of it. But I think where there is real potential... And it's back to what we were saying earlier about the need to really think in a, a, a well, carefully and in a, a, a different way about how we provide care for people with complex needs. I think that's where GPs as clinical commissioners, I think that being a clinical commissioner could give them some of the extra uh, status or perception of influence because they're controlling some resource to actually go and, well, it's more than have the discussion with secondary care colleagues, be able to start to sometimes hold those colleagues to account or get them to join in the network to say actually you have to be, become part of my I don't know, let's call it net network or federation that's going to provide a, um, care for frail older people in a different way you know I, you have to come and be part of this here you know we're not necessarily going to locate it all in the hospital but I think that's where the status of clinical commissioning and the role I think could be something actually quite powerful to start to shift that balance a bit so it's not an adversarial thing but it just helps to give general practitioners and their teams that lift I think to help them um, actually do do this or take forward this change that I think we all know needs to happen and needs to involve secondary care colleagues and I guess with them doing what they were originally supposed to in the sense of being being the consultants to uh, to, to primary care um, now, do we, st we still have these two tribes. I'm interested from an educational perspective because, you know, for the last 10 plus years, we've had community education of medical students. And those medical students who had large exposure to primary care have now become hospital doctors. You'd think they'd speak our language. It doesn't seem to have made a blind bit of difference. Uh, no, I think, I, think, I think you're right. And I think that's one of the, one of the, one of the things we've got to crack. But I, I want to go back to this issue about primary versus secondary care and, 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 and different clinicians beating each other up uh, about, you know, you know, how bad each other are or whatever. I mean, I, th I think that is pervasive. And I think, and I think there's the, the sort of the language of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it goes back to the language of pr procurement and competition, which I think drives some of those, some of those things. I think we want to talk about population-based healthcare, where all the providers responsible for 
the population collaborate together and clinicians actually work collaboratively together across that population interface that's where we need to get to uh, and, and I think one of the ways to drive that is going back to my earlier description of a community-based education model where we actually genuinely get professionals from different backgrounds learning with and each other around around the needs of the population so that concept of interprofessional learning where um, ST7s in paediatrics work with GP, GP trainees in an environment where they learn and, and, and work with each other that's the sort of thing that's going to address some of these behavioural interfaces that we've been talking about. Thanks now I mean from an educational perspective I couldn't agree more now Helen you've worked very much across the consultant primary care boundary in these commissioning roles how do you think we could best work together? I think there's quite a lot of goodwill from the consultants to come and do this and there is a difficulty dealing with the acute trusts to allow them out of the hospital and into the community. Um, I, I don't quite know why, they, they just seem to think they're perhaps not earning their keep by coming out of the, the hospital building itself and, and that has been a real struggle. We are getting the, the commitment from the secondary care clinicians who want to come and work with us. They're just not being allowed out.